What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. And on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are on episode number 39, I believe we are. Uh, no, no, episode 40. Um, to, today, I'm introducing a, a friend of mine that I've met recently on Clubhouse. His name is Jerry Alexander. And uh, just before I get into introducing Jerry, last week's episode 39, we talked about the big risk factors facing property investors. And uh, today, we're going to be speaking with Jerry, who um, I've met through uh, Clubhouse. And uh, for those of you who've been listening to my podcast, you will know that Clubhouse is uh, something that I've been focusing on for the last few weeks since it became um, the biggest, the hottest ticket in town. And everyone seems to be jumping onto it. And uh, what's amazing about it is that you meet these people on it that you never even knew existed prior to this. And suddenly you find that you've got this kind of connection with somebody. And that is exactly how I would describe meeting Jerry, who is speaking to us today. Jerry and I didn't know each other from Adam uh, about two weeks ago, I'd say. And all of a sudden, here we are on one another's podcasts. And, and I'll let Jerry tell you about his podcast at the end of the show today. But let's get into the show, shall we? Jerry, welcome. Um, you're most welcome to uh, the show. Uh, we'll get into Clubhouse in a little bit, but... Um, for the purpose of just bringing the audience up to speed, who is Jerry Alexander? Hi, Gavin. Thanks for having me on. Um, I, I am giggling because you're saying, you know, about Clubhouse there. And let's be honest, it's taken over your life. <laughs> it's swallowed I'm you sorry up. To, I'm sorry to admit it, but yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm Jerry Alexander. I'm based over in Scotland. I've been investing in commercial for about 15 years. I started initially doing resi. Um, I live just north of Edinburgh and we invest within about an hour of where we are. We don't really go. I did once upon a time invest in a speculative house development miles and miles away. And that taught me a lot. And the biggest lesson was just there's plenty of diamonds in your own back, backyard. <laughs> don't be flying down to the south of Spain, in other words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that sort of thing. Yeah. And can you just uh, describe your upbringing? Um, I mean, just from the point of putting people in the picture as to you were growing up in a small town or is it a sort of... Yeah, that's a good... I've never been asked that. So um, I grew up um, north of here in the Highlands. Um, I lived with my mother only. We lived in a council house. Eventually, she managed to buy that house through whatever scheme Maggie Thatcher had at the time. And then we moved up to Inverness and then eventually I went down to Edinburgh, studied down there and ended up slowly moving my way north back to what feels like homeland. I'm just not quite up there yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and have you got any influences that particularly stand out in your life as, as a boy, as a young kind of impressionable young man? So I guess when I when I got to see my mother, who now lives in the Spey Valley, there's a house there that I pass. And it often makes me reflect. I remember when I was younger, one of my friends, his uncle, was doing up old houses. And this particular house was a typical little cottage, one and a half story, if you know what I mean, with the, the roof lights and whatnot for the upstairs. 
And actually, I just passed it last year and everything was being ripped out. It was all going in skips and they were going in and refurbing it all. And 40 odd years ago, I remember when they were refurbing it last time and, and my friend's uncle was doing it. And I think looking back, that was one of the things that made me want to do up old buildings. So that, that was a bit of an influence. Didn't really know his uncle, but I just, I got involved in a day or so of looking around and being involved in those projects. And that was probably what made me start thinking about doing building stuff. Um, beyond that, I wanted to go, because I, I, I lived in Spey Valley, everything's about skiing, right? Or at least it was for me. So I had this view of, right, I'm probably going to start my own business, but I'm going to go and work in the Alps for a few years. So oh, nice. I'll go and get I'll go and get studying out the way, make make my mum happy, all that sort of thing that I've been to college or uni or whatever, and then I'll go and ski instructing or ski guiding. But then I met my wife, so that never happened. Ah, okay. <laughs> so. I, I thought you were going to tell me I spent years in the Alps. And, uh... No, it's still to come. I think <laughs> that's the retirement plan. Yeah. And so uh... and then there was another there was another couple of people in my life that have. Um, helped along the way. Not not that they knew they were mentoring me and not that I probably looked at it that way, but they had influence on my thinking and what I was looking at for my future. So right. yeah, there have been some individuals. I wouldn't say there's been some, you know, big rock in my life, but there's been a number of individuals that have helped shape my thinking. Okay, interesting. And and so what age did you get into the the, the, the property business? Yeah, so I guess just tied into the, the mentor thing, um, the one person I did meet, but only through paper, <laughs> was Robert Kiyosaki and Rich, Rich Dad, Dad Poor Dad. Dad. Yeah. yeah, so I read that. I also read Richest Man in Babylon, and those set me on a track to starting to invest in Resi a little bit earlier than I maybe would have done, and that was... It led to me buying my first true investment, I not the house I was living in, in 2000. And that was um, a two-bedroom house that I found that was a repossession. And I, and I remember the price of it was something like, let me just think now. I think it was 39950 And I felt really pleased that I asked and got 500 quid off that price. <laughs> That was my below market value, 500 quid off the price. But that's where it started. And then I did, I repeated that over a few times, flats and houses and things. And then eventually I discovered commercial property. So describe your first commercial property deal. So, Yeah, so I, going back to the Robert Kiyosaki thing, I was thinking, right, how do I find this bigger deal? People talk about bigger deals. How do I get cash flow? How do I get cash flow? Because houses are fine, but... There's a lot of work, and we were discussing this earlier. Some of the big projects can take the same amount of time as a small project. So how do I find a big deal? Anyway, it took me quite a long time, and I ended up getting this office building. And I certainly didn't set out to own an office building. But this was a ex kind of army field, airfield, sorry, building. It was the headquarters for the officers in the Second World War or whatever. So it's an old building. And the... The chap that owned it had his own business. In fact, he'd had a few businesses in there, but he had some tenants, so he sublet some of the spaces, and he had maybe 20 businesses in that building, something like that. It was 100% occupied. So on one side, that's great, less risk. On the downside, 
I had to buy it for a multiple of 10. The yield was 10%. That was it. So it wasn't like some amazing, awesome, you know, making a million quid straight away on a commercial deal. But what I did do was I started to do the same as I did with houses. I refurbed, I redeveloped space. When people moved out, I changed what the, the offer was. And over a period of about three or four years, we actually managed to triple the value of the building. Triple now, nice. tripled it. Now, I didn't know I was doing that. All I was trying to do was increase the cash flow. It was only when we went to buy another one and, and the bank said, look, we're going to have to get a, instruct another valuation. I had to go and find a value or a value or valued it. And they phoned me up. And the, we actually bought the building for 200 and, £240,000. I mean, it was the price of a three-bed house. And I remember he phoned me up and, he's t- and he says to me, right, right, so Jerry, um, what do you think? And I'm like, um, well. You tell me. You know, yeah, well, exactly, yeah. I mean, not being impolite, but, you know, you tell me. Well, I think probably around about 700, maybe 750. Thankfully, mm-hmm. I was sitting down. <laughs> So this was a shock to you. It was a shock to me. But what I discovered through that process was the value is affected so much by price. Uh, sorry, by income. Yeah. And the net income had tripled. So therefore, the value of the property had tripled. And, and, and I hadn't realized that's what we were doing. So then, and this was in 2008, nine. Then obviously, um, things happened in the economy and, and properties that I'd been looking at that were going for resi and were really difficult to do my model and um, started becoming more available. So we bought another building and did the same process. And, and we've gone on and done that um, quite a lot of times now. So we, we've got a portfolio of multi-let um, commercial buildings. They're not huge. The largest is 35,000 square feet, which is the biggest than our most recent, but maybe 10 to 15, that sort of size. Right, right, right. And um, from the point, I mean, we talked about, I remember you speaking to me about this on Clubhouse, actually, and we were talking about the the real attraction to commercial, leaving aside, obviously, the, the F&B sector that's been so badly hit by COVID. But if when you get into the residential sector, you, you go and buy a house for 240 grand and like nothing that you do to that house, like you couldn't go and bring in gold plated sinks and taps and, you know, everything and put in a hundred thousand euro kitchen or pound kitchen, your house is still only worth 240, maybe 280 now or something like that, but it's not worth 700,000 all of a sudden. And that's the great thing about commercial is that it is, detached from the kind of underlying value and it's totally related to the income value. Absolutely. And and that's where the real attraction is. And I think what's interesting about it is all I hear nowadays, I mean, every time I turn on the the, the internet and every time I listen on Clubhouse, it's HMO, HMO, HMO. And I kind of think to myself, do people not realize like there's so much more out there than, than just HMOs and stuff. So this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on today because you're doing CMO as you call it. Yeah. And, uh, and that's really interesting for me uh, just to kind of hear your perspective on that. Um, coming up with the capital for your first deal, was that a struggle? Was that sort of, um, did you kind of, were you working two jobs? Were you doing all that kind of stuff? I mean, I often, I'm often curious about that first initial sort of deal. What did you, did you beg, borrow and steal in order to put it together? Did you use investors? 
how did you kind of um so so you have it? to remember i was i was already doing resi and you know I, it amazes me even now I, I so i sometimes um help and support people do what i've what i've done and and that step between going from resi to commercial it seems like sacrilege but all i did was sold some houses <laughs> you know so i took some of the the equity was in those properties and used that as the down payment on the commercial and a, and a lot of people i speak to just don't really think that that's a sensible thing to do or that you can do that <laughs> it doesn't seem to occur to them but that was where, how i funded it i mean to be fair at the time funding was slightly different it was back in 2004 that we bought that building so it wasn't just a case of the, the bank guy just made up his mind there and then, but it was certainly more, um, he had more flexibility. Yeah. So, not so like that first it. deal was, was easier. Um, but I would still say the same to people nowadays, you know, if you need to get some equity into it, either a, you're going to have to raise it through private finance, put your own money or just sell some houses. It's not yeah. a big deal Sounds and cool. use that for it. And of course, nowadays we've got crowdfunding and all these other of course, avenues. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. What kind of challenges did you feel that you faced when you were starting out on that first commercial deal? Um, challenges. Well, because it was already class four, I didn't have to change anything. But what I did have to do was change some of the structure of that building to make it, because I had to subdivide it a bit more. It started, when I took it on, I had 24, 25 rooms. It's now got about 35. If we divide up this last space, it might be 40. Um, and sometimes doing that in these buildings may seem easy, but actually it's a hell of a job, <laughs> depending on what the structure is. But this thing was all um, pre-stressed slabs, bison slab sitting on double brick clinker brick walls and trying to put a hole in those is not easy right so that that was challenging changing the format the boiler was old we had to change that the windows were all metal we had to change all those but i was running another business at the time this wasn't my main thing right so funding that just came out of cash flow but if i was doing this again and I had more of a sense of urgency then the challenge would have been raising the money to do all that work really um, but in terms of like mental challenges or any kind of I guess inhibiting myself I, I, looking back I can't remember too much actually I'm trying to think through the proper how this went through i actually went out and found a guy who might have been a partner in that building and on reflection it never in the end i bought it myself but what that would have meant right back there at the very start is i would have gone 50 50 with somebody and i'm and it may be a completely different picture now mm. if i'd done that um and i do reflect on that quite a lot and the reason why i was bringing him in on the deal was because of the uncertainty and because it was a higher risk. So I guess that's reminded me that that was one of the biggest challenges really at the time was just, can I do this? Is this sensible? Maybe I need somebody else to come along to make me feel more sensible. Um, yeah. But fortunately that didn't happen through some, for various reasons it didn't happen. I ended up doing it myself, thank goodness. 
Yeah, well, that's it. It's it's funny. Some of the deals that I did, uh, I partnered up with people. And, um, and of course, at the outset, when you're borrowing the money, it feels very sensible. But then fast forward to it when it's an enormously profitable deal and you just think like, God, how did I give half of that away? You know? yes. <laughs> um, tell me this in um, like early advice that you got when you, when you got into that, does anything stand out as particularly good advice that you got, you know, in those early days that kind of set you on your path? Not particularly. Just learn as you go, basically. Learn as you go. I tell you a good bit of bad advice I got, if that may be the right way of putting that. So I was doing the houses, the market was going up, I was doing okay, the values were going up. I had a great relationship with a local um, surveyor. I'd phone him up, say, look, I'm looking at this house in, you know, whatever avenue. He'd know the market. He would just tell me, yeah, I think that's a good enough price, whatever. And if we got, we put in an offer a bit less, if we got it, he would go and survey it. That's the way it worked, right? So I knew he had another colleague in a different department who did commercial. And it took me quite a long time through a, phoning directly, and B, trying to go through the guy that I knew to actually even see this commercial agent. But eventually I managed to see him. And I, it might have even been the case that I was in seeing my guy and the other one was in and I just went in. I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. Anyway, he, I sat down and said, look, you know, I'm trying to find a, a, a bigger deal. I want to do some commercial. Um, the resi thing's going well, but I need to start investing in commercial and start learning this process. And he, and he listened to me for a bit and he, and he put his glasses down. He says, Jerry, um, if I were you, in this local area, there's four guys who buy anything that comes just before it gets on the market. They buy it. If it comes on the market, it's probably no good because they've all looked at it. If I were you, Jerry, I'd stick to that residential thing. No way. So that was my advice from the commercial guy. <laughs> Just shows you, doesn't it? I yeah. mean, this is one of the things why, you know, I I often sort of say, you know, be careful the advice that you get, uh, and often it comes from family members who mean well, but a lot of the time their meaning well doesn't actually come from a place where they actually have any knowledge about what you're trying to do. Yes, and and so you can get bad advice, and it and it comes from the best possible place of trying to protect you, but you can end up making a big mistake listening to it. It, it um, was, it there was a little kicker in the story. So I didn't take any, pay any attention to his advice. I found this deal off market. I had, the bank had to instruct a severe and guess who had to come out and value it. <laughs> that very man. <laughs> that very man. So he came out and he met me in the car park and he looked at me because it was the company name and he looked at me and he says, oh, hi, Jerry. Uh, how did you hear about this one? I didn't know this was on the market. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> too busy listening to his own advice. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. That's a great, no, that's a great, I love, I love those stories because those kind of, those guys that have all the experience and stuff and think they know it all. And, and it's great to kind of put them in their place every now and then. Yeah. Um, and what would you say, uh, which, what bit of advice has made the greatest difference to you sort of since you began, like from start to finish, is there any particular bit of advice that has kind of stood out as, the one thing that has made like the, the difference that has changed everything. There's, there's, well, there's, can I have three? Sure. You can have whichever you want. And some of them are cliches. So um, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. That's so true. Yeah. If you don't ask, you don't get, man, that's really helped me asking. Like I could tell you lots of stories about that one. If you don't ask, you don't get. And then, 
There's a chap um, who mentored me a bit on commercial and specifically, and his thing always was, it doesn't matter how bonny the building is, it's whether you can compete with the guy up the road. And what he's referring to is if you're buying secondhand property and you are in a market that's quite flat or might even be worse than flat and the pie is a certain size and it might be shrinking, if you've bought well, you can always compete against the other guy. And it doesn't matter how bonny or in bonny your building is, you just have to buy well. And, and I've, I've kept that one for sure. Although yeah. I really do like good looking old buildings, um, that, that one really stood me well. And is there any, are there any sort of habits or behaviors that you've had to stop or kill off in order to succeed? Was there any kind of natural things that you were inclined to do that weren't serving you very well? Okay, that, that's a whole podcast in itself. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've taken upon myself to try and work out when I'm looking at people that are really successful, how is it that they have 24 hours a day, the same time I have? How is it that they manage to do so much more? And, you know, at the end of the day, it's eye of the beholder, isn't it? But sometimes you look at their work rate or their success rate or throughput or whatever you want to call it, and you just think they've got the same 24 hours. How does this, how does this work? What is it they think? How do they think differently? Um, and I've tried to, un tried to unpick that. And as pieces reveal themselves to me every now and then. And um, one of the ones that I think is really important is conditioning. So if you think about it, when you're, when you're growing up, you know, you have influence in your life, whether it's kids, friends, parents, teachers, guidance teachers, the ones that tell you you maybe can't do something or you're average or, um, you know, are you going to be a joiner, a plumber or a, or a fireman, whatever it is. And all these things chip away at your conditioning and how you view yourself. And then as you get older, you start working with people and you associate with people and they've all got their image and thought, which often is a reflection of yourself, how you think about yourself, of course, but they've got this thought of pigeonholing you where you are. So it can be really difficult to step out of that. So give an example. If, if you've got a, a mastermind and, and I, I run a, I don't run, I am involved with some guys locally where we've been getting together for quite a long time just to discuss property, business, whatever, on a sort of monthly, bi-monthly thing. And it's, it's amazing to watch new people come into that. And if, if you think about it, somebody who's starting to invest in residential might think to themselves, I'm going to invest in one property a year. They're just getting started. I've got a bit, you know, I'm working. I've got other things going on. I don't really know how this works. I'm going to invest in one property a year because I know that in 10 years I'll have 10 and that'll give me good security. And that's their goal. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But meanwhile, down the corridor, there's another meeting going on and everybody in that room thinks and believes that they're going to add, um, they're going to add 10 a year for the next five years. And in five years time, the guy in the first room has managed to get five because that was his goal and he thinks that's great. And the other lot, it was a fait accompli to them. They've gone and got 50. What was the difference? It was just the thinking and the associated thinking around them. So 
that conditioning piece, I think, is one of the biggest, biggest influencing factors, certainly for me. So when I look back on goal setting that I've done and I think to myself, do you know what? I maybe should have aspired for something higher, but it was all relevant, all set off from the conditioning I had at the time, what I felt I could achieve or couldn't achieve. And one of those big lessons for me is just that thing about lifting your aspiration, trying to mix with the right people and not necessarily completely accepting and maybe questioning what your, what your perceived output might be. Because at the end of the day, you've only got one life, haven't you? So, sure. yeah. you know, um, there's no point doing it as a dress rehearsal. You've got to try and think through what you're going to achieve. I'm not saying world domination is something that everybody should be going for, but it's really interesting how much influence everything around you has on your thinking. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that's a really good point. I think you've it's it's all up here in the mind, basically. Mm. I mean, you know, the old Ford, uh, the old um, Henry Ford statement. You know, if you can, if you think you can, or you think you can't, both are true. Yes. And uh, and so it's it's all down to to your mindset, I guess. Um, I want to just talk about your your business. So it, it's called Inch More, and and I see it's been around for like twenty years now. And so you specialize in the commercial sector. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So expand on that. Like um, at this stage, you've added a number of other buildings and you've, you know, what, what, you know, are you doing a lot of deals every year or does it take you a couple of years to kind of. I, I'm doing on average one to two deals a year. So the most recent one we took on has got 15,000 square foot of space. We're going to split up into maybe 30 units. So that, that, that will take us, until probably autumn we, we we've got enough momentum now that we generally do that sort of thing out of our own cash flow resources yeah um and on and i'm always having a bit of an argument with myself about this because that takes time and i could be off getting another building but what it does allow you to do is flex and develop the building out to suit whatever the market is telling you it needs and i think if you go in buy a building, bring in a main contractor, spend all the money as fast as you can so that the building is ready, you may build something that might not quite work if you yeah. don't know what the market demand is. So we tend to try and phase our developments. So we'll do maybe half a dozen spaces, do up the, the central core and the communal areas, and then we will see what inquiries we get to really make sure that we focus in on what the market definitely wants rather than what we think it wants. Suckers and see kind of a... Yeah, a little bit of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's maybe not the best strategy, but it works for us. Um, well, in terms, sorry, go on. Go no, on. I was just going to say it's, you know, it's it's the kind of the aggressive, you know, all in, or it's kind of being more conservative about it and just making sure that you're making the right call. And, yeah. uh, and, and of course, maybe you're leaving, if the market is going in one direction, maybe you're leaving a little bit of money on the table, but if it turns and corrects in the opposite direction and you've got a whole load of units that you've spent half a million fitting out and suddenly yeah. it's you know sitting there empty then you feel pretty foolish about it so i think conservative often is kind of when you when you're taking in a conservative approach you often look back at it um when it all worked out you look back at it with certain regret and i can remember when 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 the market was rising in ireland very rapidly i used to have these kind of arguments with my family in my family business because i had these relatives that were kind of older than me and they were in my opinion they were way too conservative and um, 
we were in this kind of business that had been established for years and years. And along were coming these people that nobody heard of. And, and three years later, they were competing with us in these massive buildings. And I remember saying, like, what are we doing here? Like, you know, these... But these guys were rolling the, the dice like and it was all in uh, on a single deal, whereas we were kind of, you know, taking the conservative approach and stuff. And but what, what really was amazing is that these guys, you know, three years later, they'd be flying around in helicopters and stuff. And so it had really worked for them in that particular time period that we're talking about. Where are they now? Well, exactly. You go forward another three years. And the helicopter is gone. And, uh, and in a lot of cases, these guys actually went fully bankrupt and, uh, and they had to completely rebuild and start again. But it's amazing, like when you're, this is why I try to tell people, like, just focus on you and your, what's in front of you. Stop worrying about what the other guy is doing because you go and look at this other guy and you're focused on him. Jeez, he's got a helicopter now. Whatever he's doing is definitely working. I need to do that. But then three years later, the guy is bankrupt. And suddenly you look back and you go, ah, okay, so that's how he did it because he was, you know, 200% finance. And, you know, and there was guys in, in the, during the Celtic Tiger fly, driving around in Ferraris and stuff like that. And I've, I've spoken to quantity surveyors these days and they were saying like, oh, you know, we used to, you know, we were, we were certifying work for bank drawdowns and the guy would like throw a, an invoice from the Ferrari dealership and he says, put that in there with the, with the certification. <laughs> So that he could buy his Ferrari like <laughs> off the back of the latest drawdown from the bank. And it was, I mean, it was just a wild west back then. But everyone was looking at the Ferrari and thinking, my God, he's so successful. Like, you know, he's just got money everywhere and stuff. And comparison is just one of the worst things you can do in this business because you just don't know what's underneath. You know, yeah. when the tide goes out, you start seeing who's been swimming naked. Isn't that Warren <laughs> Buffett said that? <laughs> um and uh, I just I, I saw in your uh, in your LinkedIn as I was studying it for our talk today, you've got a business also called Liberty Space, and yeah, I, so I gather yeah that is let's part let's of finish that conversation yeah that question you asked earlier sorry I mean you're going off on a tangent so basically we have a prop co and an op co, and the property company the prop co owns most of the assets. And the operating company, the Liberty Space you talk about, is the business that actually does the day-to-day -day management of the properties. Now, part of the reason I separated that out was so that I could have other prop codes, and some of those might be JVs, some of those might be other people's buildings that we don't own at all, but the operating business can go in and manage the building. So some people would just buy the building, develop it, and put in an operating company, not their own, somebody else's, and either on a lease or a management contract. So people like Regis and WeWork and these guys often do that. Sometimes they do rent to rent, but these days they're trying to do more management contracts. But we're also the, I guess the Regis, we're not obviously their size, but we, we operate the building. We have staff, we have our contracts with customers and with suppliers through that, built, that business, which then allows the, property side to be a little bit more insulated, a bit more ring fence from the day-to-day -day operations with customers. And then effectively there's a management fee that goes between those two businesses. And it'll allow us to potentially take on other people's properties. And we recently did a, a JV or, or at least got private money for a building that we bought. And that was an SPV. So it's another prop co, I guess, but the operating business is the one that will actually manage it on a day-to-day -day basis. 
it's a nice model actually yeah i like it it works well and um uh, obviously covid has that has that kind of thrown a spanner in the works or have things worked out um you don't know we don't know do you but i i think on balance things are different but they're not uh, particularly in a bad place. So as an example, we have industrial stock and storage stock. It's all 100% full. You mentioned earlier on about, about industrial. I mean, the yields on industrial are so low now, if you're buying. The office space has performed okay. I think the challenges in it, because we do flexible licenses, so they may only be a year long. And what happens is you'll get churn. You've always got churn. And the churn has been pretty much the same as usual, maybe slightly less, in fact. But what you don't have is as many people coming in. So you're not replacing as well as you would normally. So some of our buildings are 100% full, but some of them are not. And, you know, we could do with more um, inquiries. But if we go back to 2009, 10, 11, 12, um, that period there taught me that when this uncertainty comes along, your traditional least um, companies that have leases in place, when they come to the end of those leases and they come to review, um, they don't really know what they're going to be doing in five months, let alone five years. So they're trying to find flexibility. So last time round, our inquiries went up considerably. And yeah. this summer, our inquiries for one of our buildings, which is more in a city centre, have really gone up a lot. And a, and a lot of that's due to the, the head office is shut or they can't travel they're working from home, they need space somewhere else. And, and we've got a building um, that we developed, a co-working kind of small private spaces, a, a floor of that building in, we started in, I think it was maybe March, February or something like that. Anyway, right about COVID time, finished it in June, it's 100% occupied. Wow. All by people that are in that scenario where they just, they work for maybe a corporate, but they need their own space. They're not allowed in the office or they maybe started up themselves because of the current situation. So flexible offering um, going forward from here should should really pick up. So in answer to your question, has COVID really hurt us? Well, I've got a restaurant. That's I don't need to say any more than that <laughs> on yes. that one. Yes. Um, but in terms of industrial storage, it's all been really good. In fact, we bought a storage park in February and it's it's 100 percent full. Um the office space, as I say, has just been a bit slower. That's basically the, the right. way to describe it, really. And um, that's a good segue into the restaurant business that you were you just <laughs> mentioned. So, uh, what in what kind of motivated you to actually open a restaurant? Was it similar opco propco kind of opportunity? So, um, that particular building was the first building that I did up that was a listed building. So we spoke about motivation way yes. back. Um, one of the things I really want to do is, and do enjoy doing is doing up old buildings. Just love them. So this particular one was in my local town. It's, like, it's one of those buildings everybody's driving past saying, is anybody going to do something with that? You know, sort of starting to dilapidate and in three years it had been vacant. Anyway, we bought it. It's, uh, it was a prison, mortuary, courtroom, registry office, all, all the kind of civic stuff that goes on you know and it was all going on in this building so it was a bit of a jumble and we managed to 
create a co-work in the courtroom and offices, but on the ground floor, there was a space that I just thought, because of the building, because of the heritage of it, because of its kind of position within the local community, I thought if we could put something in here that would be more than just an office, a space that would allow people to come in and, and, and enjoy the building, but also give us a, a space that we could wrap the offices and everything else around. So in the end, after bringing a friend of mine up, in fact, who's a tenant of ours, who I knew was looking for another project, I said, look, when you come and have a look at this space? So we had a look at it. In the back of my mind, I knew what I thought we could do with it. But anyway, long story short, we put an extension on and we opened up this food and beverage offering, which ended up being a full restaurant. Uh, we weren't sure what it was going to be. You know, it was a, a little bit of finger in the air. But, you know, we, we costs we could keep down. We didn't need half a million quid to start a restaurant. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. We You know, we knew the landlord pretty well. <laughs> and we developed out that space and it's been interesting, but obviously the last nine months have been, you know, yeah. really challenging. I mean, we had about 25 people working in that business when we went into COVID. Uh, how long was it running before COVID hit? Five years. Oh, five. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, by that stage, it's a, it's a business that's performing well and, you know, no reason to kind of regret getting into it until. No, no. I mean, I would say it's a bit of a distraction. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely a distraction. Um, but putting aside COVID, the thing, the other, you asked me about why, the other two reasons for doing it. One was it was a thing that I could do locally that my kids would get to understand because they see the buildings and they don't really, you know, I mean, they don't mean too much tangible yeah. to them. But a restaurant with a wood-fired pizza oven, you know, and coffee bar and all that stuff. Yeah, they can understand how that works. In fact, one of my, my older son works there, albeit at the moment he's on furlough. <laughs> so it was something they could get involved in, which I really wanted. Um, That's a nice then, thing, yeah. It's nice when you get the, involved. Yeah, and then the second element was I needed to experiment with food and bev as part of a provision. So where I'm trying to take the business, if we can find the right buildings for it, is a building where we can build that environment where there is food and bev as an offer within the property, but rather than being there for mainly for the public, it's actually there for the building occupants. Mm. And the next building we went on to, because we had done that first one, the next one was a B-listed one and the bank came on the journey with us because we'd kind of worked, worked up the model previously. This building was about another two, two and a half times the size. And it's allowed us to put in um, co-working, business lounge, private spaces, a venue space, which we're redeveloping right now, and food and bev. So there's a real mix there. There's not accommodation, which would possibly be the next step, but it, it's got enough breadth there that when people go into the building, it's got all those great features, those old historical features, and it just feels more of a place people want to be in. So you, you can get, office workers or, or co-workers or whatever it is that, that they're they're using. But equally in the evenings, they could potentially use the venue space or the food yeah. and bev offering and that sort of thing. I think that is, it's a tried and tested model over in the US. If you, yeah. companies like Convene and Industrious and stuff, they do that for landlords and it's working quite well. So yeah, I think it's a great, I think it's a great model. Getting into sort of, you're working with your tenants and your, you know, long-term kind of tenants, do you have any, is there any particular key kind of um, advice for holding on to tenants? Because 
the tenant that stays with you for years is, is usually the best tenant because you have that relationship with them. Is there, you've obviously with so many different so sort of SMEs working with you and stuff like, is there any thing that you found that works well for, for kind of building relationship and hanging on to tenants long-term? Most, most of our properties, we buy a certain size so that we can put a member of staff in. So you would go into the front area or the reception or the lounge or whatever, and there'd be somebody from our team there. And that means that if you pick, and, and then it's all down to picking the right person, doesn't it? So yeah. if you pick the right person, they're building a relationship with the customers. They probably get to know the customers more than their accountants do. You know, we, we have often talk about it. We'll maybe do some reviews and, and we'll think about customers and, and, you know, is anybody potentially at risk and all that sort of stuff. And often you can, you can almost tell that before the customer will come and see you. Mm. Just from, so yeah, just from the phone calls, gossip. who's coming to visit them? How quiet is it? Are they smiling? Do they say hello with their face down in the dumps? You know, all that stuff. You can tell if you, yeah. you know, if you switched on to it. So that, that really helps. The thing is, you need to keep it as a professional relationship, though. Yeah, and, don't get and, too friendly. You know, you can't, yeah. What is it? What's the phrase they say? Um, familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. So, yeah, if you get too close, there's definitely a balance there. Yeah, You've got yeah. to stay professional. And do you, are there any particular traits you, you look for in talking to tenants? Can you tell a good tenant from a troublesome tenant just like given the amount of people that you've seen and over Gosh, dealt with over the years. I could definitely record a podcast on that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to kind of protect the names for it. <laughs> you have to, um, you have to have a conversation with them. And, and I, I, at the end of the day, it's a bit, it is sales in the, the day you're trying to sell a room, aren't you? So my, process if i'm involved in looking uh, showing because uh, when when we're developing a new building i tend to go there work there help with the development and do some of the first viewings because i get an understanding of what customers want which really is invaluable so when i do those viewings i tend to do them very relaxed and general and we'll have a wander around and we'll talk about the vision and the things we're doing but all the while i'm asking questions subtly but i'm trying to find out how long has this person been in business what sort of scale are they how many staff do they have what type of customers do they have what sector are they in and you can't prejudge but it all helps build up a picture and often you'll have somebody come in particularly if it's a guy i'm afraid who'll come in and he might be inquiring for 500 square feet or 1000 square feet whether he knows what that is of course is another thing but he'll come in for that sort of size and you have the conversation, he's looking for an office for six or eight people. But actually, when you dig into it, there's only two of them. And although he wants six to eight people in his mind, and he thinks that's going to be next month, usually it's about a year's time, if at all. Mm. So it, what we do, or I really try and do, is make sure when customers take space with us, they don't overstretch. Because if they do, event, often they'll put their head in the sand, and eventually it ends in tears. Yeah, yeah. And you're much better getting a customer to um and, and it's, a, it's an ego deal isn't it it's trying to get around the ego but trying to get them to settle not settle take a space that's much more sensible for where they're at 
Now, it's not for us to judge that, but it's maybe to try and work through that because we offer flexibility. If they grow, well, then grow with us, go into a bigger space, take on another unit or whatever. But it's, it's trying to really work out where that customer is, what their experience is, and whether they're going to, what they're saying is actually the reality. And it, I think you will find out some customers that you think, hmm, maybe a bit of a wide boy here <laughs> and and so in some scenarios we might eventually say no um most most of the time we don't but we do sometimes say no we think do you know what been here before yeah yeah <laughs> i've heard this before we're not doing this one yeah but that's no. just over time isn't it you can't tra- you know it's difficult to train that it's the ego and emotion, not so much on your side, but on the other person's side and just being able to read the, read the numbers and just understand whether they're being realistic or not. Yeah. And, and we, we, I mean, I guess over the years, I don't know, I could probably add out, there'll be something somewhere, but we've probably had four or 500 customers and, and you definitely do see pattern repeat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Patterns. Tell me this in terms of, um, I'm just kind of winding up our conversation yeah. on, in Clubhouse, love it or hate it. Um, oh, I think it's great. I, I don't know where it's going, but I think yeah. it's great. Yeah. I'm trying to be pragmatic about it, like I try and be with most things. And, and I think it will end up being a place where two things. One, you can go and have a regular conversation about a particular topic and you're not just diving in all the time, unless you're using it as a radio. And the second thing is, I think it will be quite a good tool. I've actually started doing the odd phone call on there now. So oh, really? Yeah, Letting so if I meet, yeah, well, you, you can have private phone calls. So, for instance, oh, when okay. you meet somebody on, on Clubhouse and, you, and you're like, you're automatically, I'm thinking, right, well, let's set up a Zoom call or something. Well, no, you can just set up a private room. Okay, I forgot about that. Of course you can, yeah, yeah. So just there and then, yeah. Yeah, and, and I had um, somebody seeking some advice from me on commercial, and we, we've been talking sort of offline, but there's two of them. And I just sent, I said to them, look, why are you on Clubhouse? Yeah. Why don't we just form a room? Then all three of us can be in the same conversation instead of trying to, you know, sit there and listen to one phone and all that sort of stuff. So actually, I think there will be a, it will be a good tool to add to the arsenal. It, it, Zoom does certain things. Skype does other things. And, and being able to reach quite a few people, let's say you've got a team or something, and actually talk to them. Odd on audio rather than them all having to be in front of a computer screen, I think would be a pretty that's, good tool. That's a really good point, actually. I never even thought about that. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm curious to see where it all goes. All right. Because um, there are people in there and clearly they want to be the next kind of big influencer and they're kind of putting enormous time. And, and so I find it's a big time suck issue. It's, you know, you, you have to focus 100% if you're in a room because people are. Yeah. People are, you know, oh, you know, can you ask, a, can you answer a question? Can you answer that question, Jerry? And you're like on your computer, huh? What? Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. was that? Sorry, so, could you repeat that? Yeah. yeah. Can you repeat the question? Um, tell me this, uh, Jerry. Um, I was going to ask you just um, some of the advice that um, we've talked about, a lot about different advice that you got over the years. But if you were speaking to yourself as a young man uh, today with all the experience that you have, what advice would you give to yourself now looking back? Depending on what stage you caught me at. <laughs> Say straight out of university. Yeah. Um, buy more houses. 
<laughs> get, get active. Get Fill in. your boots quick. <laughs> um, but in reality, yeah, I mean, that would have been great to be able to go back and say that. But I think just lifting aspiration level and mixing with the right people, that, that, that's really the big ticket item, really, because it, it can change everything. Mm, for sure. And do you have any books or podcasts that you would recommend for people to kind of learn f- more on? Um, I mean, there's loads and loads of books these days, isn't there? There's so many modern books. I mean, a couple of the classics, though, for me would be The Seven Habits. Oh, yeah. Stephen Covey. That's just such a good book. Some of those things in there begin with the end in mind. It's one of the other ones I didn't mention earlier on, but big things. And obviously the Kiyosaki book. Yeah. I do like Kiyosaki's Guide to Investing, which is his third book. It, it just a bit more meat on the bone in that book is quite good. Yeah. Um, in terms of podcasts, I, I I do pop around and have a listen to different ones. There's there's some that you settle into and then you might sort of drift off to another one. I'm sure I'm sure most people are like that. Um, I do like some of the ones from um, Rob Moore. I don't listen to them all the time, but I dip in and out, um, especially. Um, some of the ones that to do with marketing or, and I quite like his money podcast. And then there's some friends of mine that do podcasts that maybe aren't international, but, but I enjoy listening to and, and, and the stories and things. So it, it, it's having a mix, isn't it? It's a spice of life, I guess. And tell us about your podcast. Yeah. All right. So my podcast is aimed at, it's called the commercial property investor and it's aimed at helping people go from residential into commercial investing and trying to just pull back the curtain a bit. And the industry is really good at making everything um, opaque. A bit like that thing with a surveyor saying to me, um, yeah, I would just stick with, you know, residential. And and it's a bit frustrating. So I, I, what I want to do is try and lift the, lift the curtain a little bit. I mean, we're talking about Clubhouse, right, Gavin? You would have seen this. You go on Clubhouse, right? There's a conversation about commercial. And before you know it, we're all up here talking nonsense and dribble that mm-hmm. the commoner doesn't, a commoner, the normal person doesn't understand. Yeah. And the, only reason, the... and the only reason some people are talking up there is flipping egos. So they're, they're talking these terminology. terminology and you're yeah, like, yeah. will you just talk English, please? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try to appreciate the, the level of the person that's listening in. And... Yeah. I mean, what are you on here for? Are you on here for your ego or are you on here to try and help people? And, yeah. and you know, it's a big difference, isn't it? So I think, with my podcast, I'm just trying to make it a bit more level and try and unpick some of the mystique around commercial. So that's what I've been doing. We've, we've done 50, 51 episodes now, so it's not quite a year old. I, I do about one a week, occasionally the odd little extra one about the market or something that's come up. I have to say I'm really enjoying it. I'm meeting great people. Um, I have... Not had any projects from it yet, but I have had opportunities, you know, from meeting people. And of course, you just learn lots. You're yeah, just learning lots yeah. all the time. So, yeah. It's great. Yeah, no, I'd, um, I'd point people. I'll put in the show notes today, I'll actually put a link to your podcast so that people can find Brilliant. it. Thank there. you, Kevin. Um, final question. Um, looking forward at your career today, looking forward, say, 20 years, is there any kind of particular impact that you would like to look back on and, and be kind of known for um, at the end of your career? So I don't know what that connection was, but I said to you earlier on about my friend's uncle and those houses. 
he never did up a castle, right, or a historic building. But very early on, I got that sense that I want, I think I quite like archaeology and stuff. And I wanted to be able to get involved in historical buildings. So the piece that I would like to, to, to think that I've done, other than obviously family related stuff, which just takes a higher priority, but would be somebody who has taken some of these older buildings, secured them and made them sustainable so they will they'll survive us long past because at the end of the day we're just custodians of these sort of things aren't we mm. and and i remember the first one we bought was off a council and they just didn't know what to do with it they just didn't know how to fin- make this thing sustainable on its own two feet as it were and and that's the bit i really enjoy doing but i also take the pleasure of the fact that when i'm doing i'll come back to that i take pleasure in the fact that i'm securing them for future for people in the future. And just as an example of that, this particular building we did up, it had three sets of stairs in it and all sorts of corridors and everything else. And one of the things I did was one of these sets of stairs, it would have been sensible to knock it out because then I would have been able to release another area for maybe some more offices, which you can still get to through other means, but just not as conveniently. And, and I just thought, I know what I would feel if I was redeveloping this building in 15, 20, 30 years' time. Who the hell took those stairs out? Yeah, yeah. Because the architecture of these things is fantastic. Who took those historical stairs out? What an idiot. What did they do that for? So what we did was we just re-changed our design, built them in, put in a T-point on one floor, you know, a storage in another area. So the stairs are still there. So they could be reused in the future if somebody has some other use for the building and, and that's one of the things I really like anyway it's just the feeling that I'm having impact here and these buildings will be around a long time after I've gone clearly it's a, a passion of yours so it's great that you it's great to be able to your, turn your your job or your career into your passion so yeah well done on that Jerry um, before we go uh, how can people find you um, yeah so the commercial property investor podcast which we discussed earlier on. I'm also on LinkedIn, Jerry Alexander, just search that up on Facebook. I'm there and Instagram would be jerryalexander.commercial. Good that's man. what that one is. And in, in, that's Instagram, sorry. What was the other one? Oh yes, we have a website. Yes. Let's commercial, that would be good, wouldn't it? Commercialpropertyinvestor.co.uk. Great stuff. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for being on the show and uh, look forward to seeing you in Clubhouse. Yeah, in about half an hour or something, Gavin, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's been brilliant. Thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. So that's it for episode 40 of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. If um, there's any web links uh, or things, you'll find them in the show notes below. If you found this episode useful, my number one ask is to leave a review or a five-star rating on the platform of your choice. This helps us get noticed and the uh, algorithm will pick it up and send it out to more people. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community or alternatively on my social media, Gavin J. Gallagher. All right, guys, have a great week and we will talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.